Welcome to the next great podcast. iHeartRadio's talent scouts have been on the hunt for the freshest, funniest, and most compelling voices out there. We've sifted through thousands of incredible entries. Now, we're giving 10 lucky teams the chance to impress you. To crown the next great podcast, listen to these 10 pilots, and then vote for your favorite at thenextgreatpodcast.com. Today's entry comes from Leanna Holston, and it's called Frankly, My Dear. Watch Rewatch podcasts are more popular than ever, and we love Liana and Sienna's irreverent approach to capital C cinema and their eagerness to put the classics under a microscope. Liana and Sienna clearly have great rapport and share the same dry wit. And as film world newbies, semi-objective outsiders are in a unique position to question the judgment of pretentious Hollywood gatekeepers. Hello, I'm Sienna from Seattle. And I'm Liana from Los Angeles. And you're listening to the pilot of Frankly My Dear as part of the Next Great Podcast competition from iHeartRadio and Toggle. We are two idiots who love most entertainment but hate movies. They're confusing. And usually offensive. We're watching every movie on the American Film Institute's list of 100 greatest American movies of all time to give our frank analysis of the classics. Elitist film buffs, beware. We might enjoy some of these films, but frankly, my dear, we don't make any promises. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the highly revered 1941 film, Citizen Citizen Kane. Kane. Warning! This episode contains spoilers about this decades-old film. Yay! Now you don't have to watch it. Just to give a little rundown of who we are, let's just chat a little bit. So Liana and I, a few months back, were having one of our phone calls, and I brought up some film reference, I'm sure, about a movie that I have not seen. Liana responded, Oh, I have never seen a film. (laughs) It's true. In my college screenwriting class, whenever our professor cited a classic film that we all were supposed to just like know as a frame of reference, I was just like, oh, I've, I guess I've never seen a film, as it turns out. I myself really, I love television so much because there's so much more time with the characters. There's much better character development, in my opinion, which allows for there to be great female characters who often, in, in most movies, there's really poor character development for the female characters. So. I appreciate that in TV shows. And then in terms of movies, I think the only ones I've seen are the Marvel films. I don't know what happened. I think I just forgot to see any other movies. But these classics, they keep getting brought up. We both work in entertainment. So we're doing this podcast to get them off their pedestal and actually take a look at them. It should be accessible to everybody. So if anybody else feels that way, please join in our journey and watch them with us. I'm really excited to talk about this Frickin' film (laughs) with you. (laughs) Okay, I guess we should start with our predictions. Yes, agreed. So before we watched this movie, this is the very first one on the list of AFI's 100 Greatest Movies of All Time. We decided to put down what we thought the movie was about, what we know about it so far, just to prime you, our listeners, and ourselves for where we started going into this experience. So here's my prediction. I hope you can hear this. Hi, Liana. It's Sienna. I'm about to go watch Citizen Kane for the first time. I don't know anything about it. I've never even seen a photo. 
I'm pretty excited to watch it. I only know two words, Rosebud <laughs> and Sled. I don't know what those have to do with anything. Assume a man with dark hair stars in this because all men seem to have dark hair until like the 70s. <laughs> and uh, there's probably an angry man. I think I get it mixed up with... Um... Wait, have I seen this movie? <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> what happened at the end? It sounds like somebody arrived and you had to quickly leave. All right, I will play you my prediction. Right, meow. Hi, Sienna. It's Liana. I'm going to guess what Citizen Kane might be about. I think it's going to be about a bunch of men with very thick glasses <laughs> in the 1970s trying to file paperwork. I don't know why. I know it was made in 1941. That's just the vibe I'm getting. Okay, love that. <laughs> I think we were pretty close, honestly. We had a lot of it accidentally captured. So a sort of breakdown of the film itself. There's this last word that Kane, Citizen Kane, says. He says Rosebud. Basically, the whole film is a group of journalists going around to all the people from his life, asking them if they know what his last words mean. None of them know the answer, but instead they end up telling the journalists all about his life. So we see this man's life play out through the stories that people tell these journalists. Um, I've got you know, just several bullet points of historical context. Sienna, may I may I share these fun facts with you? It also looks as if she has about three pages, but um, go ahead. I'm going to rally through these relatively quick. If you don't enjoy history facts, please feel free to skip 30 seconds in this podcast. Maybe a minute, who knows, however long this ends up being. And the coolest thing about this movie, which I hate that I started a sentence about Citizen Kane like that because I hated this movie, <laughs> is that the character Charles Foster... What's oh my god, Kane. <laughs> <laughs> the titular citizen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Charles Foster Kane is based off of a real life person, William Randolph Hearst, the publishing, you know, mega person. Oh my god, I'll find a better term. Publishing Baron William Randolph Hearst. There were a lot of parallels, right? Like Xanadu, the palace in the film, is based off of San Simeon, which was Hearst's oh, castle in California. The character of Susan, the distraught woman who cries and does puzzles, had a lot of parallels to Hearst's mistress, who was a showgirl turned actress named Marion Davies. And then I, I really fell into a wormhole about the Spanish-American War. <laughs> Basically, in the film, they say that Citizen Kane, titular Charlie, is starting the Spanish-American War. And it turns out that the Spanish-American War, which was in 1898, there was a lot of talk that it had been started by what was called yellow journalism, which was these publishing barons sensationalizing headlines to sell millions more newspapers Whoa. using like melodrama and romance and hyperbole. And these two barons were Joseph Pulitzer, who owned the New York World, and oh, William Randolph Hearst, who owned the New York Journal. And the biggest uh, catalyst for the war was the sinking of the battleship, the Maine. I don't know if you remember learning about that. Remember the Maine! <laughs> remember the Maine! Of course I remember the there Maine. There you go. And must we all, the two biggest newspapers at the time blamed that on the Spanish. And that is what caused a lot of American sentiment to become so anti-Spanish. And it's said that that is like sort of what got the US to enter the war. Dang. Okay, well, welcome back listeners who just skipped ahead three minutes or however long. <laughs> that is fascinating. Thank you. I thought so too. All right. Shall we dive into the review yes. of this flipping movie? So we've been fair. We heard the interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, what's our take of the film itself as we saw it for the first time? 
Every review of a film, we like to start with something called phone notes, which is where we read out notes that we took on our phones while we were watching the film. Mm -hmm. We don't talk to each other while we're watching the films because we are quarantined separately. And so this is our time to share with one another some real-time thoughts that we had in the viewing. During at least the first half hour of the movie, most of my notes are, is there ever going to be dialogue? (laughs) The film starts with a newsreel announcing the death of Charles Kane and giving a long obituary of his life. I also was worried for you during the beginning of the film because I know you've in the past said how much text on screen stresses you out and is difficult. (laughs) There was so much of it. I was like, no, is this what it's going to be? I did also, however, write, okay, font. Oh my God. Very fun fonts. You're, that's okay. Well, it's font I would use in like a. Yeah, okay. (laughs) In what? What would you use this font in? All right. In like a a flyer that I made in college. (laughs) It's pretty much the font I always used, which is just a tall, thin font. It looks great to my eyes. Like yourself. (laughs) Like me. I like anything that that looks like me. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I'll read. Oh my God. Also, the fact that like a newsreel is cool to like start it off. We've seen that. And I'm sure this is what created that cliche. Mm -hmm. But it's one thing to have like, you know, two minutes of that. But it was the solid beginning of the movie, like 40 minutes, maybe. Fact check. It was only 12 minutes of the movie. It took so long. And then we just had to watch them act out everything we had just seen on the newsreel. I I wrote down at the beginning, I was really excited because the opening shot is like a spooky mansion. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, it's October, Halloween vibe. And then I wrote down, is this tropical Dracula? (laughs) I really wanted it to be because it's like a castle with palm trees. And I was like, I'm I'm down to clown if that's what this film is. And then it was absolutely not. (laughs) Okay, before we go further, I have to say... I knew what Rosebud was the whole film because I worked on a musical parody of Game of Thrones where during the opening number, one of their jokes is that they spoil a lot of classic film or TV moments. What? So as a result, there just was nothing like keeping my interest this entire movie because the only driving mystique of it is what is Rosebud. And every time they brought it up, I was like, it's a sled. (laughs) I know. I felt that. I knew absolutely nothing. Had seen no photos. But as as we heard from my prediction, I only knew those two keywords. And so I was pretty sure they went together. <laughs> okay. And then we move on to a scene from Kane's childhood where his mother gives him to a wealthy man, that's Thatcher, who will take Charlie to a better life. I loved so much when the child hit the man with a sled <laughs> and the man said, oh, Charles, you almost hurt me. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's the Charlie Bit My Finger of 1941. I also thought about Charlie Bit My Finger quite a few (laughs) times throughout this film. If you fast forward later on to when they're in Xanadu with his blonde second wife, Mm -hmm. and she's like, Charlie, please, Charlie. She sounded exactly like, Charlie, and it hurt, Charlie. Ouch, ouch, Charlie, ouch. I want to see my friends, Charlie. Oh my gosh. I guess because the transatlantic accent was so much closer to British and those Charlie bit my finger boys are British. Um, In the child scene, that was actually one of my more favorite parts of the movie because so many strange editing things happened. But first of all, one thing I wrote down during that childhood scene was, did they just sell their son? Because, okay, I actually did. If you could clear that scene up for me a little bit, I didn't understand it. It was, I I did really like all the 
Well, throughout the whole film, I really liked the, the camera, the shots and everything. And I was focusing on that at least, mm-hmm. but um, no idea what was going on. Yes, I will jump in here because I also was confused. And for me, what was getting to me was the talking over that everybody was doing in almost all the scenes. But especially in this one, multiple people were saying lines at the same time. And it just like my brain shuts down when that happens. It's like when uh. you're on the phone and then you get an incoming call. And the screen pops up with too many options and just my brain turns off and it did the same thing here. But they finally stopped talking over each other for long enough for me to realize that they were the mom was giving Charlie away to this wealthy man. I don't know why the wealthy man wanted the boy, but it was because his father, Charlie's father, was abusive. And so she was like, this is what's best for my boy is to give him to this rich man as his, I don't know, ward um, and then the freaking, I just, the montage was so chaotic. Okay, yes, this montage. Thatcher reads the headlines to the audience as time passes. The montage ends with Charlie as a young man now running the newspaper. The guy Thatcher breaking the fourth wall and doing a flea bag look to camera oh, it made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, the, the headline montage. I also... I, I couldn't tell what the headlines, I don't remember any of them now, but I, I was thinking like, I, is this bad? You know, is this, what do these headlines tell me? Is this bad news? <laughs> I don't know. I also just couldn't read it in time. Okay. <laughs> he read it aloud. <laughs> he did? Oh no. Wow. Okay. I, I'll be honest. The thing about Thatcher, my one thing I remember about him is thinking that his head looked a lot like a hazelnut. <laughs> so I was probably focusing on that. <laughs> okay. Another important note I wrote, is Orson Welles hot? (gasps) What are your thoughts on this, Liana? Okay. (laughs) Shoot. This was a bit of a journey throughout the movie of me being like, huh. Uh. Hmm. Uh." Very much kombucha girl reaction vibes. (laughs) I am so upset that you asked me this because I was hoping nobody would. (laughs) So that I wouldn't have to confront my inner feelings about... (laughs) Sorry. Or not this man is hot. I think it's tough because he gets like jowlier by the minute as the film goes on. Mm-hmm. I think no. When he put down, when Thatcher put down that newspaper and it was first him like leaning back in his chair, I was kind of like, oh. Well, here's my question: Was he hot, or was he just closer in age to us than he had been for the whole film so far? I do think that was a big part of of the allure. <laughs> That's really true. I mean, that's something about quarantine altogether though i told you the other day and i am happily in a relationship but (laughs) i brag but i ran into like a man my age ran into okay i was purchasing an item from him (laughs) (laughs) was he a street peddler (laughs) i i curbs i picked up this very microphone oh and uh he just smiled and was my age and i feel like there was just this feeling of we're like should we get married (laughs) I just, I see why the baby boom happened. I see why people just like, were like, yeah, let's let's do it, man. Somebody my age? Haven't seen that in a while. I also don't know how much they nailed the period piece at this time. I didn't really pay attention to that that much. Oh my gosh. Speaking of period piece, did you see that scene in the office where there was a gas lamp with no lamp on it? It was just a loose flame in the back of the room. Oh, in I thought you meant the office, the television show. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> well, but in my defense, it was because when you said, did you see, I was like, I saw the movie, so <laughs> not be talking about the movie. Okay, wait, but now that I've all caught up with this, you're talking about the fire lamp that was just like, thank floating? you. Yes! Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell you a single thing that happened in that scene because I was so stressed about this loose flame. I was noticing that as well. Totally. I was like, is that, okay, first there were two of them. Because I was like, is that on his bed post mm-hmm. at first? Did And then I was thinking, whoa, is that what they did back in the day? Is just attach fire as high as possible, meaning they attached it to the highest possible piece of furniture? And it's like, no wonder everything burned down all the time. You had a flame that was just out and about. I, <laughs> I did love, I mean, that bed frame I loved a lot when that character Bernstein just toppled through a door with what looked like a collection of high school drama club set pieces. Because <laughs> it's like two bed frames, a big like wicker basket, yeah. and a random cart. <laughs> Everything a man needs to live. <laughs> Come on, boys, let's get them set up. <laughs> I'm fresh off the wagon with four things, none of which are habitable. And of course, as we must discuss, in the dark. <laughs> It was so dark. I really felt for that guy who plays the reporter throughout the film, because you get to the end of it and you have not seen his face once. He's been in silhouette the entire time. Yeah. Can you imagine that actor going around town being like, no, I was in Citizen Kane. And everyone's like, what? I didn't see you at all. Who, who were you? Yeah. It's like, I was the main, I mean, in some ways, sort of the main driving character of the movie, you know? <laughs> it was really my story that I was telling. Yeah. You think that was... An artistic choice, or do you think there's, um, you know, some reason that they did that? Like they hired the guy, and then turns out he was fugly. Well, oh my god! Every man in this film was ugly. There's no way that that was their driving decision factor. Really? What about his best friend who ended up wearing the visor when he was old? He's kind of cute. Mm. He was, but then when they did that political rally that really felt too Hitlery for my taste, he just looked like a full Nazi. I do have a quick segment, which is just times that I knew Rosebud was a sled. Okay. (laughs) The very beginning, his dying words are Rosebud. Yes, Rosebud is a sled. (laughs) In the scene where Charles, as a boy, hits a man with a sled, that sled is Rosebud. (laughs) There's a quote where somebody says, Rosebud will probably turn out to be a very simple thing. Yes, it's a sled. Mm-hmm. There's a snow globe motif because there's a sled on snow and the sled again is Rosebud. The sled is very prominent in the childhood scene. Why? Because it's Rosebud. I cannot believe this entire film is trying to figure out that it's a sled. <laughs> and then in the final moments you see the sled in the furnace is Rosebud. Rosebud's a sled. That concludes the segment, Times I Knew Rosebud Was a Sled. His mistress also, what's her name? I don't want to just call her his Susan mistress. Susan or Susie. Susan. When? They met. Mm-hmm. She was <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> she was so dumb. She was so <laughs> dumb. It was ridiculous. Hauntingly so. Charlie and Susan meet outside of a drugstore, and he's just been splashed by a passing car hitting a pothole. So she invites him up to her apartment to get cleaned up, where he seduces her. It's gross. When he's showing her a, a finger puppet on the wall, and her- I know. You can see her mind just exploding. I was like, ma'am, weren't you ever four years old? She was just a child. I mean, she went from being like, he, 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 I'm simpler and I don't know who he is. And that's what I provide for this man is that I'm just, I'm a a ditzy flues. (laughs) Turns 
turns out she was actually a full baby. <laughs> it was just so funny that that evolution because it's like, oh, like, do you want to come in for some hot water? Oh, we can't close the door. Which, by the way, very creepy when he goes to close the door. That was the most ominous door closing I have ever seen, including horror films. <laughs> it stressed me out so much. Then she opens the door and she's like, no, my landlady won't let me because I'm simple and, you know. And then... It- Fast forward to him showing her a finger puppet on the wall and her like, (laughs) she just became a baby. I hated it so much. Oh man. When she said, I'm pretty old. I'll be 22 in August. All I wrote down was like, legitimately kill me. (laughs) Guess my life ended two years ago. I know. Of course I wrote, I miss women and people of color. Yeah, really. But then whenever they gave him to me, I was like, no. Not like this. That's not what we meant. (laughs) When they're at the table for a meeting of the newsroom and it's all men. So many men. I've not seen so many men because I would never choose to watch any piece of media with 60 men, white men at a table. It's so many white men. And then when they all are laughing, I felt very unsettled. (laughs) It's scary. They're scary, man. Yeah. Um, And then a bunch of women come out and dance. He fully kissed a dancer on the mouth, which you could tell she did not expect or want. No, thank you. Not okay. (laughs) And okay, Orson Welles, not a good dancer. He should stay still. When Susie's really miserable in Xanadu, Charlie takes her and apparently a hundred of their closest friends on a beach picnic. That's really like more of a camping trip. And Charlie and Susie argue in their tent. And then there's a very surprising sound effect. Um... What was the screaming outside during the picnic? I wondered the same thing. What the hell? I was very spooked. That was terrifying. That was the main unexplained thing from this film that I was like, what? (laughs) Did someone die? (laughs) The main unexplained thing to you was not the fact that Rosebud was a dumbass sled. It was someone screaming at the end of a scene. It was at least all the same level of confusing to that point. Like, it was all like, okay, I guess this is art, or okay, uh, okay, uh, boring type. Where this one, it was just like, she's just staring at him in the the background. A woman is getting fully murdered. (laughs) (laughs) Is that, like, supposed to set the tone? Like, okay, what can we do? Like, what kind of music? I don't think music is enough to set this. Let's just have somebody dying in the background. In this segment, Badges and Trages, we will award the film a badge for anything we think it did well, and we will give it a trage for things that we found to be tragic moments. For me, some badges. The camera angles and the lighting were amazing. I thought they were really, really cool. Hmm. Very, very modern, interesting. I see why, I do see why this movie is so innovative. And it did make me, at the very beginning, some of these shots were so modern and beautiful. I was just thinking, like, why didn't every movie keep doing this? Like, why have there been so many bad airplane movies? (laughs) When they were given the blueprints since 1941. That's a great point. Right. Like it was so, it pushed the boundaries so much. Why didn't we keep doing yeah. that with a lot of films? <laughs> uh, oh, big furnishings gets this one a badge for me. So there were some big chairs. Bernstein, old Bernstein was sitting in a huge chair. That fireplace? That, in The, the fireplace. Mm-hmm. Yep. Huge. Massive. And then as we were saying, enormous spaces. I mean, I don't even know how they shot the Xanadu shot in the very last shot with all the the statues and everything Mm -hmm. i don't know how they shot that at all that was amazing yeah huge i I will say if you asked me how they shot any of the film i would not be able to tell you because i do not know how to shoot a film (laughs) (laughs) i barely know how we're facetiming right now (laughs) 
badge for cliche creator as well, because there were a lot of cliches that I saw throughout this film where I was like, oh, and then I was like, oh, you know what? It's 1941. <laughs> they probably invented it. <laughs> they probably did this. Yeah, this is probably. That is funny, right? Like we get very annoyed by things that we're seeing in these films because we're like, what a trope. But at the time it was like, hey, this was the first time we ever did this. <laughs> Come <Yeah>. on. <laughs> hey. <laughs> and, you know, I thought the acting, I liked the acting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. These are very interesting because I would say my trages are mostly the same as your badges. Like, really? The huge spaces and the furniture just stressed me out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, this poor woman in this massive castle that's so dimly lit. Yeah. Her eyes are going to be so poor after doing all these small puzzles in a huge castle. <laughs> and then the acting for me, it felt like for the last 20 minutes of the film, the only direction that the actress who played Susie received from the director being Orson Welles was scream every line. Starting from like her voice training scene with the stressed out Italian voice coach, who I loved. Yes, I um, did too. She's always just, and I will lean away from the microphone now to give an example, but she's just like, Charlie, where are we going to go, Charlie? I don't want to be here. I want to go to New York. I will say I have to award a badge because this film did my favorite thing that happens in old films, which is that somebody picks up a telephone and yells into it. Hello, get me New York. Who did that? The reporter guy who's in silhouette the whole film. That's a good badge. Yeah. <laughs> you do love that. I love it. My tragedies were mainly just like, yeah, those things were good about it. And I see the ways that this is like a very memorable, incredible, innovative film. Mm. But it was just too long. It felt so long. Viewer, listener, the runtime is two hours. That's like a standard time. There was just too much of a lot of stuff. Too many scenes, too many men. So many men. It's also, I felt it was, the length is only exacerbated by the fact that you see the full plot of the film in the newsreel at the beginning of the film, which is in itself too long. Yeah, it's like an essay sort of format where you hear about it and then you see it all played out. That's so true. What would you rate this film? I think this one for me gets 0.5 snow globes out of five. <laughs> Just in terms of how much I want to watch it, I would not recommend watching it more than you have to. I also would give it 0.5 out of five. I would give really? it 0.5 sleds out of five. <laughs> uh -huh. um, and I only give it 0.5 because it's in Colorado for a bit, which is where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> and so I felt really seen. And I was like, great, 0.5 sleds. Nothing else about this movie deserves anything. <laughs> I just feel like anything that's really good, the, some of the scenes are so beautiful and whatever, but you can just look up some YouTube, some of Orson Welles acting, Ugh. a few of the shots, the amazing shots they have, and you're good. That's true. And that's actually a perfect segue into our segment, how to pretend you've seen this film. Yes. This is for, you know, you're at a party in Hollywood, you get cornered by Matt who went to Emerson, and he's mm -hmm. bringing up Citizen Kane. We're going to give you a few sentences you could say to pretend you've seen this film. You say, oh, the lighting? I mean... Wow. The sled? An homage to his lost childhood? My gosh. Well, Matt, you know, perhaps power is really the thing that makes us all feel the most powerless. There you go. So those are a few sentences you can say to pretend that you've seen the film Citizen Kane. Now just a recommendation for if we think you should watch this and what you should watch instead of watching this. 
Any thoughts, Liana? Yes. So for me, this is always going to be the question of, should you watch this or should you watch 1917? And I'm going to (laughs) say, y'all, you got to watch 1917. It's a delightful romp. Those are not adjectives that apply to the film at all. (laughs) It's a really groundbreaking film. Um, I loved it a lot. Part of that is just, you know, a real infatuation with George Mackay, star of the film and all of my dreams. But it's great. It does some things that the movie does anyway. Yeah. Like the shots like you were saying. There's a cinematographic journey, um, a massive brag on my part for getting through that word with no issues. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you. Sienna, um, how about you? So I would say you could watch this movie. Um I would recommend that it's something like if you want to fall asleep because it made me so sleepy every time. Uh, a movie you could watch instead to fulfill like a similar role, I think, would be actually um, Nacho Libre has a lot of interesting shots um, <laughs> as well with the people being far away from each other. And, you know, it's also a man kind of considering his own hubris. <laughs> So I'd say that that one's probably uh, just the sort of modern, updated version of this sort of this story. Yeah. And that's the pull quote from this podcast. Nacho Libre is the 21st century Citizen (laughs) Kane. (laughs) Sometimes we will do uh, a desired after credits scene. And I think in this case, a perfect after credits scene that would just make this movie, I mean... 20 times better would be if it closes on the sled getting lit on fire and whatever and then we go to black but then lights go back up to see somebody hopefully that butler who barely opened his mouth (laughs) running over and going that sled says rosebud on it take it out of the fire quickly (laughs) i would love either it's the butler and he rescues it or it's the room full of white male journalists who see that it's a sled and they all in unison go aw perfect that would fix the film (laughs) yep that's it so that is citizen kane thank you everyone so much for listening and if you'd like to you know give us a retaliation your thoughts on citizen kane your thoughts on films generally just any thoughts you have please feel free to tweet us at fmd the pod and we'll get a conversation going if you liked this episode of frankly my dear Please, please vote for us and tweet us once you voted so we can hug you virtually. If you didn't like this episode, please vote for us and we promise to never talk about this movie again. Thank you. We love you. Bye.